That was wonderful. I'm Ann Teese, and I, it's a joy to worship with you all today. And I have the blessing to get to read Jonah 1, verses 4 through 17. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, hearing your saints lift their voices and sing your praises just heightens our anticipation of heaven and of being around the throne and exuberant, unencumbered worship. Father, we're not finished and ready yet, but you have promised to finish in us what you began. We know that you use means to do that. We pray that you would use your word and the preaching of your word this morning to bring us further into completion and to perfection. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So my family grew up as a camping family. Uh, Not so much when we lived in Florida, it's too hot and too many bugs, but by the time I was in junior high and high school, that's what we did every summer. That was our vacations, camping. We camped through upstate New York, Ohio, all through Michigan. Uh, Great memories. But of all those memories, there is one night that stands out in Waugh family lore. It was the night of the great storm, okay? Uh, I remember going to bed, and it was a light drizzle that just grew heavier and heavier, and it was an absolute downpour. 
And the lightning was so intense, so close, so frequent, you could see it with your eyes closed. And the thunder hurt, hurt your ears, shook your chest. And I don't know how long we were laying in our tents, but eventually my dad called out and said, okay, out of the tents, into the van. And at that point, when I stood up, my air mattress was floating in several inches of water. So we spent the night in this 1988. We spent the night in our Astro van, which my dad had to relocate from our campsite to be right next to the bathroom because my sister had a nervous bladder and spent most of the night running back and forth between the van and the bathroom. In the morning, we got up, gathered our sleeping bags, took them to the laundromat, threw them in the dryer, and went to the movies. <laughs> and went to see the perfect movie for the situation, The Great Outdoors. John Candy and Dan Aykroyd. Still rates as one of my favorites. I might watch it this afternoon, just thinking of it. Storms stand out in our memory, don't they? This storm that we're talking about in Jonah 1 is one the sailors who were well accustomed to storms, being mariners. It's a storm they would never, ever forget. This chapter, Jonah chapter 1, I mentioned last week that Jonah is filled with great uh, liter literary devices, and this one has tons of conflict. This chapter has man against nature, in the form of man against storm, and eventually against whale. It's got man against man, Jonah and these pagan sailors. Man against self as Jonah's wrestling internally with the call and his rebellion and conscience. And obviously it's man against God. But in Jonah chapter 1, we're invited, encouraged to compare and contrast Jonah, this Hebrew prophet, with these pagan sailors. And think, you know, I'll just give you, a, Jonah's not going to come out on the winning end of this comparison, okay? I, I know last week I was really, really hard on Jonah. This week I'm going to try and be a little bit more balanced, okay? So what do we see about Jonah in this chapter? Jonah is dumb stubborn and mean-spirited. I said I was going to try, not succeed in being. Okay. Dumb, stubborn, and mean-spirited. I know it's not nice to say it's dumb, that he's dumb, but it's accurate. He is running away from God. In the next chapter, we're going to see Jonah knows his Bible. He quotes extensively in the next chapter from the book of Psalms. I know he knew Psalm 139. Where can I flee from your spirit? If I rise to the heavens, you're there. If I descend to the grave, to Sheol, you're there. And yet still Jonah persists in running from God and from the call of God. We read that he goes down into the inner part of the ship and lays down. That's the fourth time the word down has been used of Jonah. 
He went down to Joppa, went down into the ship, went down into the inner part of the ship, and laid down to sleep. The author is using these words to communicate he is moving farther and farther from the presence of the Lord, all intentionally. And he falls into a deep, deep sleep. Probably a sleep to kind of try to silence the the inner turmoil and not have to wrestle anymore with, with what he is doing. But even there, he can't escape God's presence. The captain comes to him and says, What are you doing, you sleeper? Arise and call out. When the word of God first came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, in verse 1, the word of God was, Arise, go to Nineveh, and call out. So here the captain is using two of the three same imperatives, Arise and call out. Can't escape from God's call. Even the ship in this story is portrayed as knowing more than Jonah, being more in tune. The ship thought to itself it was going to break up. But beyond being dumb in the sense of not knowing, not understanding, he's not speaking, he isn't forthcoming. He doesn't pray. He doesn't confess until he's absolutely pressed. Jonah is, you get this sense, kind of mean-spirited about this whole thing. Almost as if he's saying, if I'm going down, I'm taking the ship with me. So we often view Jonah as opposing God's plan for his life, not really wanting to go to Nineveh, but it's way, way bigger than that. Jonah's not just opposed to visiting Nineveh, but he seems to be imposed, uh, opposed to God's plan to include the Gentile nations in his saving, redeeming work. And that... That opposition to God's plan is here spilling over into his treatment of these pagan sailors, treating them as less than. It's only when he's forced that he offers any help at all. The sailors recognizing that this is not just your normal storm. There's something supernatural going on. Uh, Their efforts to, to save the ship by hurling cargo overboard hasn't worked. So they decide we need to cast lots and to figure out on whose account this evil has come upon us. And they cast lots. It's plural there. They did it multiple times to make sure they got the right person. And it falls to Jonah. And they begin to pepper Jonah with questions, lots of questions. Who are you? What have you done? What's your occupation? What God do you worship? And Jonah identifies as a Hebrew. I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord of heaven, the one who created land and sea. There's this slight hint of superiority I'm a Hebrew. I worship the true God. I am better than you pagans. He says, I fear, is the actual word, I fear Yahweh, the Lord who created sea and land. 
Do you see the irony there? If you watch TV, you've probably seen uh, recently the, this Geico commercial uh, with teenagers running from uh, an axe murderer. And one of them says, let's go hide in the attic. And no, let's go hide in the basement. No, let's, let's get in the running car and drive away. No, are you crazy? Let's hide behind the wall of chainsaws. And the tagline is, when you're in a, ho- a horror movie, you make poor decisions. When you're running away from God, you make poor decisions. You're running away on sea from the God who created the sea, Jonah. You can almost hear the sailors saying, are you dumb or just stupid? That's the picture that's being painted of Jonah. And even here, he offers no real help until he's pressed further. What shall we do, they ask. And only then does he offer a solution. Throw me overboard, and the sea will quiet down for you. There we have it. Jonah, noble prophet. Well, I've got some questions, Jonah. How about repentance? How about falling on your knees and pleading for mercy? There is this theme of just stubbornness in Jonah. He'd rather die than go to Nineveh. And it gets worse. Because if you'd rather die than go to Nineveh, why not just jump overboard? He forces that responsibility on the sailors. Rosemary Nixon, an Old Testament scholar, says for some reason, he puts the responsibility for his death on the poor, distraught sailors who were clearly reluctant to throw him overboard. What kept him from jumping overboard? Why was it that if Jonah had it in his power to save the ship's crew, it was to them that he gave the awful responsibility of throwing him overboard? Jack Sasson, another commentator, goes even further. He's not, easy on his, he's not making it easy on his shipmates. Rather, he wants the sailors to bear the full responsibility of what must happen. Dumb? Stubborn, mean-spirited. What about the sailors? What do we learn about the sailors? Strikingly, shockingly, the sailors, though pagan, come out way better in this comparison. They display compassion, wisdom, and a genuine fear of the Lord. The passage starts with them fearing, right? There is a great storm. Again, they're used to storms, but this one is shocking to them. This one is terrifying to them. I remember a few years ago, we had my niece, Kayla. She was uh, a student up at Notre Dame, and she came down to visit us. It was Easter. Kayla's not from the Midwest, and we had one of our storms, And the tornado sirens were going off, and she was incredibly fearful, and we were doing what Midwesterners do. 
going out to the porch and looking at the sky. You know? <laughs> right? We're used to it. They were used to it, and yet this was still an alarming storm, and they're working hard to save themselves and to save Jonah. They're doing their part. Actually, again, they're doing more than their part. Don't miss God's words on their lip. Not just the captain's words, arise, call out, but the rebuke. What are you doing? What do you do? You claim to fear God and you're disobeying and running from him? They display more wisdom than Jonah. They expose his folly. And they are filled with more compassion than he is. They don't want to throw Jonah overboard. They're working hard to save the ship, including their lives and Jonah's. And even when he says, throw me overboard, they're reluctant They try to row hard. They double down on their efforts to get back to shore. They show more concern for his life than he did for theirs or even his own. Filled with compassion. And they demonstrate a genuine, true fear of God. The word fear shows up several times in this, these few verses. It begins with, they feared the storm. Then when Jonah tells them what he's done and running away from the God who created the sea, they feared a great fear. And then when the sea calms down and they see God respond, they fear the Lord. They pray to Yahweh, the Lord, Something we haven't seen Jonah do yet. They pray seeking his favor, seeking his forgiveness for what they're about to do. And God responds and they fear the Lord exceedingly. Scripture tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the foundation for genuine true worship. And that's what we see them doing. Fearing the Lord, making vows, and offering sacrifices. Let me read just a a portion of Psalm 107. Psalm 107 gives us a picture of God's global agenda of including foreigners into his people as worshipers. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those who redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from the east and the west, the north and the south. Then skipping a whole bunch of verses where he's detailing different groups of people and how they come to the Lord. Verse 23, some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the work of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up on the heavens and they went down to the depths. This picture of mighty waves. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm. 
and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love, his wonderful deeds for mankind. Was this a psalm written to kind of foreseeing what would happen to sailors? Was it written in response to the stories that had been told about these sailors in Jonah's story? I don't know. But a pretty, pretty compelling connection. The Old Testament doesn't have a lot of language for conversion. This is pretty close. These pagan sailors are now making vows and offering sacrifices to the God of Israel and calling on him by his covenantal name, not just the name God, but Yahweh, the God of Israel. So Jonah and the sailors. But there's one more key actor in this chapter, right? It's the Lord. What do we see about the Lord? Well, the Lord is sovereign, angry, but oh, so merciful. You, you see his sovereignty. He commands and things happen. With the possible exception of Jonah, but, you know, hint, hint, it's going to work out in God's favor, right? God commands Jonah. Jonah will end up doing what God commands. He commands the storm. He commands the lot that falls on Jonah. Proverbs 16.33 says the lot is cast into the lap, but its decision comes from the Lord. God was sovereign over that. Sovereign over the sea, making it quiet. Even sovereign over that big fish or that whale that comes and heeds his call to swallow up Jonah. We'll talk more about that next week. That sovereignty is contrasted with the futile attempts of man throughout this chapter. Men kept making attempts to flee from God, to hide from God, to quiet God's voice. Jonah runs to Jaffa, gets on the ship, futile, can't escape God. He hides from God in the innermost parts of the ship, futile, God finds him there. He tries to silence God's voice by sleeping and it still finds him. Man's attempts are futile. The sailor's attempts are futile. To hurl the cargo over the board and save the ship that way. To row harder. Futile. But not God's attempts. The sailors eventually say, For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. God is sovereign. You also see God's anger, right? He, he hurls this storm, is the language that's used. Doesn't just send it, he hurls it like a spear at Jonah to get him to relent from his rebellion. But God's anger is not the main note. It's God's mercy. God is merciful to the sailors and to Jonah. In this story, who deserves mercy? Trick question, it's no one. No one deserves it. Jonah assumes he deserves it because he's a Hebrew. But no one deserves it. In the classic book, Moby Dick, 
Ishmael at one point says, heaven have mercy on us, Presbyterians and pagans alike, because we're all dreadfully cracked in the head and need mending. Jonah would have said, not me. I'm a Hebrew. I worship and fear the right God. But Jonah doesn't deserve mercy either, nor the sailors. Obviously, God sends mercy. He quiets the sea. But beyond that, he uses this tempest to reveal himself to these pagan sailors who had not had a witness to God yet. He uses a a wayward prophet to reveal himself and bring them to a knowledge of the true and the living God. And he uses a whale. A whale to show mercy. Mercy comes in unexpected and sometimes very unpleasant ways. But God's mercy triumphs. Uh, How do we take this story from 8th century B.C. Last year, last week I said A.D., 8th century B.C., and bring it to bear on our lives. There's a few things I think we can and should ponder. First, in the story of Jonah, there's a call to commit to the common good. Uh, The French theologian uh, Jacques Ellul said the lot of Christians and non-Christians are linked. They are in the same boat. He goes on to say Jonah's sleep compares to the sleep of the church. While the world burns and it does nothing, it doesn't pursue the common good, it doesn't come alongside. Contrast Jonah's experience on this ship with Paul's experience when he's facing a shipwreck in Acts chapter 27. Jonah goes to sleep, doesn't offer any help. Paul is out there encouraging the sailors, getting food for the sailors, praying for the sailors. He understands the, the common cause that they have together. And when they end up shipwrecked, he's out there doing his part, gathering firewood. He's doing his part. Jonah calls us this chapter, I think, to understand our common lot with humanity. To come alongside those that are doing good, important work for the good of our city, our nation, our world. Abraham did that with King Abimelech. Joseph did it with Pharaoh. Daniel did it with the kings of Babylon. We are called to do that as well. There are people all over our community doing good work. We can, as Christians, come alongside organizations, Christian or non, faith-based or not, and say, you are doing an important work, all hands on deck in providing disaster relief and feeding the poor and providing shelter for those who have none. We can pursue the common good unlike Jonah. In this story, the world kind of shows up as better than, right? Better than the wayward prophet, more compassionate, more wise. And at times, the world is. It's just better at doing certain things. What the... 
sailors really needed wasn't just Jonah's strong back and arms helping to throw stuff overboard. What they really needed from Jonah, what they ultimately got from him, was an answer to the question, what must we do to be saved? I think the book of Jonah calls us to commit to the common good. It also calls us to understand that words without actions are empty. Jonah said, I fear the Lord. Really? Do you? Uh, Your actions are telling a different story. Christian, it's often easier to stand by our creedal statements and our stated beliefs than it is to walk by them. But our witness depends on us walking by our beliefs. You say you fear the Lord? Show me. You say you trust the Lord, that you have faith in his plans for your life? Show me your faith. You say you love? Show me by your good deeds. Words without action are empty. Jonah's words about fearing the Lord were utterly meaningless. Third, reckon with the fact that your sin puts others in danger. Uh, Jonah was the one in rebellion. Jonah was the one running. Jonah wasn't the one choosing sin over obedience. And the storm came. But it wasn't just a storm that impacted Jonah. When we rebel, we can expect storms to come. Now, let me be really clear. Okay, hear this. Not every storm that comes into your life is the result of rebellion. But every act of rebellion will bring a storm. And those storms can have devastating impact on the people around us. I remember when I had to come to grips with the greatest danger to my kids' spiritual life was my sin. Not the sin of the world, but the sin of daddy. Caleb was probably three years old, tucking him in one night, lost my temper, yelled at him, and he said to me, Daddy, you hurt my heart. <laughs> my sin has impact. Your sin has impact. Reckon with the fact that your sin puts others in danger. But finally, how do we apply this? We run to mercy. The only place to hide from God is in God, our hiding place. The only place to flee from his wrath is into his mercy. Psalm 32, 7 says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. 
I love Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So are you running from God? Maybe you've been running for decades. Do you look at your life and you see the damage that rebellion has done and you think this is irredeemable? It's not. Flee to God's mercy. It is wide and it is deep. Jonah once again, in a very imperfect way, points us to God's mercy. Mercy written with all capital letters, Jesus. Jonah is offered as a sacrifice, and his sacrifice saves the many. Pointing us to Jesus, who is put forward as a propitiating sacrifice, satisfying the wrath of God, and through that sacrifice, many are saved. If we would but flee to his mercy. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, you know your children, you know hearts, you know who is fleeing, who is hiding, who just can't see a way out of their sin. Father, we pray that through your spirit you would be calling and wooing, that through your spirit you would be making mercy so attractive. Father, we pray that you would bring us into a face-to-face encounter with your Son, Jesus Christ, and the mercy that comes to us through the cross. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.